Please listen carefully. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, everyone. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're talking about economic sanctions and how they might impact Russia in segment one with our guest, Alan Cole. Given the atrocities being committed in Ukraine by Vladimir Putin and his military, we thought this was an important topic for today's show. And as always, our thoughts and our prayers and our support are firmly with the people of Ukraine. I also recognize that there are many Russians that don't support what's going on in Ukraine and they don't support what Putin is doing. I don't know how much information is making its way to Russia, but I hope that for those who do not support what their leaders are doing, you put maximum pressure on them to change course in whatever way possible and and share the real information, the factual information of what's happening uh, with the people of your country. In segment two, we are talking with public health scholar Eric Nelson about the work that he does around lead exposure and concentrated disadvantage and violence, as well as his personal journey navigating issues of faith in higher education. So it should be a good show. Now, real quick, I'm going to make a personal plea to you. If you haven't done it already, please press pause on the show and just take 10 to 15 seconds out of your day. Go to the show description and click on the hyperlink for the Connors newsletter and subscribe. It's really quick. You just type in your email and you hit subscribe and then you're subscribed. It's free. All of our publications and our podcasts, as soon as they're published, they'll go directly to your email inbox. So um, if you haven't done so already, please consider going to the show description. Just take 10, 15 seconds, press pause, click on the Connors newsletter and subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. All right. Well, joining us first on the show today to talk about economic sanctions against Russia and whether or not they'll be effective is Alan Cole, the founder of Full Stack Economics. You can visit them at fullstackeconomics.com. It's a great website which focuses on economics, technology, and public policy from an interdisciplinary perspective, drawing on their diverse backgrounds to understand the connections between the different systems and institutions that make up a modern economy. Alan Cole, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, before we get started, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background and your training? Absolutely. I studied economics as an undergraduate, and then I went on to work at at a think tank called Tax Foundation, And I studied the effects of tax policy proposals, including international ones that have some impacts on foreign exchange rates and that kind of thing. Um, I moved on to a a dual MBA in both finance and business economics and public policy. And I have worked for the Joint Economic Committee under Senator Mike Lee of Utah. And now I have founded Full Stack Economics, um, which is a website that uh, I and a partner, Tim Lee, uh, publish uh, thoughts on a variety of different economic uh, issues. And um, we run on a subscription-based model, and we take no outside investors or advertisers. So before we talk about sanctions, why don't you tell us a little more about uh, Full Stack Economics and what it is you're trying to achieve with that project. I think there's a scarcity of good economic opinion news that is divorced from any sort of uh, material interest other than, you know, getting the policy right. Um, There are a lot of smart people in policy, uh, but often they have to work for a particular political movement or take a particular line um, or, um, in some cases, take the line of a particular business. And um, that means that um, some of what you're getting is a little bit more public relations. And, you know, it can still be good quality, but it might be missing something or there might be something that has to go unsaid. Um, We're hoping that with this fully reader-funded model, um, we can put together really accurate news um, that, that really kind of describes what's going on and does so in a way that's opinionated that, that you know, 
tells you a little bit about what we're thinking um, in a way that you might not get from a mainstream uh, print newspaper, but also is, you know, opinionated in a way that is um, attempts to be objective and not really uh, part of any particular movement or particular set of material interests. Yeah, visit their website. They're doing some great stuff over there. Consider subscribing, fullstackeconomics.com. All right, before we talk about the specific sanctions that the West has prepared against Russia, let's talk first about just what economic sanctions are. So trade is normally good. Normally, both sides are voluntarily engaging in it because they're better off uh, because of they're giving something away that they uh, didn't value as much and getting something they valued more in return. Sanctions block some trade, and that really uh, should be bad for both sides. But the art of making good sanctions is finding the transactions that your target needs much more than you do. Um, it's not always the case that two sides benefit equally from a trade. For example, if you have a splitting headache and you um, need to go to the pharmacy and get some acetaminophen, um, well, um, the pharmacy is probably just making pennies on the dollar on that transaction, but you, you value it a great deal. Uh, the idea is to find transactions kind of like that, things that we wouldn't miss too much, uh, but the um, target, the, the uh, Russian economy under Vladimir Putin would miss a great deal. And um, you hear that in the rhetoric of uh, the White House and its allies. Um, they say that they want to maximize the economic damage on uh Vladimir Putin's government and its ability to wage war while minimizing the damage to American consumers and European consumers. So tell us, uh, this will be a two-part question. Let's start with the first part, but um, let's talk about what we're doing and whether or not in your estimation, will it work? So let's start with the first question though. What are the big sanctions that we are levying us and NATO and, and uh, European Union countries that we are levying on Russia? The biggest point of leverage that uh, the U.S. and Europe have over Russia is in the financial system. While you usually write checks or receive them and there's really no problem, um, the money just shows up in your account, there's actually a whole bunch of stuff that happens on the back end um, that is required to make that happen. For example, if... Um, your bank is supposed to get money that goes into your account. Um, they need to know who you are. They need to prove to uh, the bank that they're receiving the cash from that they know who you are. Uh, each bank's ledgers have to be edited uh, to account for the transaction. Uh, perhaps there needs to be an intermediary bank uh, that knows both your bank and the, the bank of the person who wrote you the check. Uh, these things are costly. Um, they use uh, networks that, that have been built up over time. And a lot of those networks run through uh, the United States and a lot more run through Europe and uh, places like uh, the EU, Switzerland, um, London. And uh, usually they go off without a hitch. And usually the costs of, of determining how to um, send stuff from one bank to another have kind of been bargained down uh, through competition, through a variety of different banking systems being in com competition with each other. Um, you know, ultimately, you're just editing ledgers. Um, you can't charge that much for it. But that sort of part of a financial transaction is actually deeply critical, even if it's in, inexpensive, even if you usually charge pennies on the dollar. And if it's suddenly taken away, um, it's a little bit like, um, you know, something that's not typically expensive, but is actually tremendously valuable, uh, gets taken away from you at the worst time. Like imagine you were at an airport and a phone charger gets taken away from you and your flight is delayed. Suddenly you're in serious trouble. And it's not because the phone charger is expensive or hard to replace in the longer run. But if all of a sudden the devices you depend on stop working, 
um, then you're kind of in serious trouble. And that's a little bit what's happening with the Russian banking system right now. Now, because I don't run a site called uh, Full Stack Economics and I don't have an economics degree, somebody asked me a question recently and I didn't have the answer. So I'd love for you to answer this question for me, which is somebody asked me, why are we legally allowed to do this? And I said, I don't know. So you tell me, Alan. (laughs) I'm not really a diplomatic theorist. um, So, you know, I I, I won't tell you what's uh, right or wrong or permissible under international law. But, um, you know, the U.S. government is the highest leverage uh, actor in the financial system. And if you thought about, you know, the next highest leverage actors, you, you would probably think, well, maybe the Chinese government and that one's a bit more neutral or wild card. But after that, you get the UK and the German government and the European Central Bank. And uh, a lot of the highest value actors in the financial system are basically on board with the sanctions regime. And um, it's definitely true that Um, from a perspective of an individual or a company, you think if my money is in the bank, it belongs to me. Um, I can take it out at any time. That's my right. I I have rights given to me by, uh, well, something, Uh, maybe um, the United States government, uh, maybe a higher power than that. But um, you feel like it belongs to you. But really, all of that is contingent. it's contingent on that uh, being respected by, for example, um, the FDIC, by the New York Federal Reserve. And one thing that um, happened with the Russian central bank's money, um, some of which is kept at uh, U.S. and European central banks, um, some of that has been frozen, and they are just being told that they can't withdraw it. And... Um, you know, that, that feels like an abrogation of some sort of property rights. And in fact, it is, but, uh, your property rights under us law were always at least a little bit contingent on, um, you know, the U S willingness to support them. And, um, the Biden administration, the elected government has decided, um, that, that freezing the assets is a, an okay step in this particular situation. I would caution against doing this, you know, uh, much more broadly. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to do it to, um, a, an American corporation just because the American corporation, um, you know, had a, some incidents of malfeasance and had a small lawsuit against them or something, um, that would destabilize your financial system. Um, if you go after too many people, then, uh, people start to wonder, uh, would I be next? Is my money actually safe? But I think, um, because this is done so sparingly, um, it's more effective and surprising when it is done. And the vast majority of people don't really fear it. You know, I don't think I'm going to have my assets frozen. Um, neither does really anyone else other than, um, Russia and people. People closely aligned with its government. Yeah, yeah, dictators, uh, imperialists. Yeah. So, uh, question for you: um, Do you think, I guess, in the short term and the long term, will these sanctions work? Are they working in the short term? Will they work in the short term and the long term? What effect do you think they'll have? The sanctions are largely effective. They are not quite as effective as they could be in theory if uh, people were extremely motivated and wanted to go to a kind of all-out economic war, if not um, an actual shooting one. Um, The thing that is left, the big hole in all of the sanction regime is um, energy. Russia is... um, a extremely large net exporter of energy. And while the United States is reasonably close to energy self-sufficiency and could be so in a pinch and has some import partners that are closer by, uh, the European Union is a strong um, importer of energy from Russia. And actually, a lot of these um, sanctions, financial restrictions are basically determined by uh, the U.S. Treasury to not 
apply to um, energy imports specifically. So there's a way that Russia can kind of still get access to some foreign currencies through selling um, natural gas um, and other um, energy-related commodities and and, uh, refined products. Uh, They can do that. Um, And that means that they aren't totally cut off. Um, And in fact, one of their their largest way of getting foreign currency is still there. But um, a lot of little details in how the uh, Russian economy works, a lot of kind of little important parts of it are now suddenly cast into doubt. Um, so the, the Biden administration's goal of maximizing the hurt on Russia while minimizing the cost to American and European co- consumers um, the exclusion of energy is really about that second goal, the minimizing the hurt to American and European consumers, because there um, you could say that actually um, we might need the, that trade more than Russia does, or at least about as much in a lot of ways. Um, energy is important to kind of making the whole rest of the economy work. It's almost a bit like finance. Um, so it's not particularly in our interests to block that sort of trade unless we want to put even more uh, pain on the Russian economy than we have already. So if we really wanted to do maximum economic damage then Western consumers, you know, German consumers, American consumers, we would have to be prepared to take on some pain ourselves, to take on some financial and economic burdens ourselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even I'm sure there are uh, some banks that are uh, losing revenue on fees and compliance right now uh, because they no longer get to do uh, Russian-related transactions. But, you know, um, that's the 11th largest economy in the world, give or take. Um, they've got plenty of other business. That's that's not a huge deal. And uh, things like correspondent banking, that that's the uh, service where um, an intermediary bank talks to two other banks it knows and helps facilitate a transaction between them. Uh, that doesn't generate a huge amount of revenue for the U.S. It's not like millions of Americans are employed in that sector or anything like that. Uh, so we can kind of afford to live without that. But if you want to ramp it up, um, you have to start looking at, at uh, places where it would be a lot more painful for us, too. And what that would mean for the average American is just paying more at the gas station. So I would imagine, I mean, from what I hear, I'm not, I don't have any training or background in this, but I've heard that this has been in the works for a long time. This is not some spur of the moment move by Vladimir Putin. So I imagine he was preparing for this. He knew that there'd be a response. He knew that economic sanctions would be a large part of that response. So um, do we know anything about how well he prepared for our response, um, how they're dealing with it, how they're trying to counteract this? One uh, epithet that's been used or or name that's been used to describe the preparation strategy is Fortress Russia. And the idea is you kind of prepare a whole bunch in advance um, on the theory that, you know, if you're Vladimir Putin, if you're a dictator who uh, gets people mad at you a lot, uh, you probably are going to get sanctioned for something and you want to be prepared for that. And Russia did prepare, but I think sometimes in the wrong ways and it's coming back to bite them. For example, um, countries under sanctions often suffer uh, collapses in their currency. Um, we've seen the, the ruble lose a double-digit percentage of its value, something around 30%. Uh, who knows what it will be by the time this episode airs. Um, but the defense of a currency is usually done with um, the willingness of your central bank to say, uh, we will back it with some other asset that people also value. And that will show that it has value. If you have a ruble, for example, you can trade it for some other commodity or some other currency. And that shows that um, we are committed to defending its value. The problem was that a fair number of Russia's reserves, which they did accumulate in kind of preparation, a fair number of them were essentially just stored with uh, 
places like the New York Federal Reserve or um, stored at, at banks in Europe. And those are now participating in the sanctions and um, saying um, that foreign currency um, that you want to use to defend the ruble is inaccessible to you. Russia did also prepare with some um some commodities, some gold, um, some of which is stored in Russia. But it's estimated that somewhere between, say, 40 to 60 percent of Russia's reserves that were intended to be usable to defend the currency are not actually going to be available. And that uh, might make it quite difficult, especially uh, given the massive pressure to sell off the ruble. It will make it much more difficult to for the central bank to defend it. And of course, if you actually run out of the currency that you were going to use to defend your own, um, if your whole commitment is, uh, we'll give you dollars or Swiss francs and instead, um, in exchange for uh, our currency and that shows that it has value and then you run out of the thing that you were using to back it, uh, then the currency can go into free fall. Um, there's um, nothing backing it anymore except the willingness of your people to use it, uh, which is probably a bit kind of on the decline. Um, and so um, the fall in the ruble is kind of pricing some of those outcomes in. Um, it's not absolute. You know, you're not you're probably not going to see a hyperinflationary environment that results in the, the entire currency collapsing or anything, but certainly it's going to become less valuable. It's going to be much, much harder for Russians to buy imports. And they do rely on a lot of imports. Um, the, their economy is kind of specialized in that energy sector. And when it comes to a lot of services and advanced manufactured goods, um, there's a lot of imports going on. And those imports will be much, much harder for ordinary Russians to buy. All right. Well, let's say we're not getting the results that we want. And, you know, six months from now, a year from now, God help us. Uh, we're still in this situation. We're not getting the results that we want. If Alan Cole was in charge, you know, what more would you have us do? Well, one thing that works to um, the advantage of the U.S. and um, the European allies is that energy consumption and natural gas consumption, especially in uh, Europe, is much higher in the winter than in the summer. So as the days get longer, as uh, the weather gets warmer, Europe needs Russia less and less, at least in the short term. Now, as for the, you know, world order that's established in, say, 2023 or 2024, um, with perhaps a, a relatively isolated Russia still suffering under sanctions. I, I, I don't know what that looks like. Um, that's a little bit too far away um, and probably depends on the military outcome and um, depends on the diplomatic outcomes. And that, that's a bit far afield for me. Uh, but it's definitely the case that Europe and the U.S. have time on their side on the economic issues. Uh, the question is whether, say, the Russian advance uh, takes and uh, secures Ukraine uh, before that can uh, come to bear. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of Russians waiting in long lines at ATMs. Um, is that a sign of something or is that just purely anecdotal and I should ignore it? Um I would say definitely a sign of something. Um, if you're worried that your currency is not going to be usable for the things you would want to use it for, um, then you want to uh, exchange it for something else. And that might just mean taking it out of the bank and going to buy stuff. Um, and at least the physical stuff, maybe some of it will depreciate in value. Maybe some of it will break or get older, um, but at least you'll have it. Um, Russians should be worried about the uh, ruble uh, declining in value, even for domestic transactions. It's already de declined on foreign exchange markets. That's priced in. But typically, um, when you see the ruble declining on foreign exchange markets, that also means that goods are going to become more expensive in Russia. The most obvious reason for that effect is simply, you know, if the exchange rate goes from 80 to 120 rubles per dollar, then buying a 
$5 object becomes um, 600 rubles instead of 400. And that's obviously just a inflation rate of, you know, 50% right there on that particular object. And then, you know, there are pass through effects where um, eventually that price uh, increase from the imported object uh, comes out to the wider economy and all sorts of goods start becoming more expensive, perhaps because they use dollar denominated stuff as inputs, perhaps because you have to pay people more, um, anything like that. Well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand this very important topic. We all hope that this Russian aggression ends as soon as possible. And if it takes economic sanctions to make that happen, then hopefully it works and we lose as little human life as possible. So go ahead and visit him. He's doing good work at FullStackEconomics.com. That's FullStackEconomics.com. Alan Cole, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I was glad to be here. All right. Well, I really enjoyed that segment. I'm really glad Alan took time out of his busy schedule to join us today and to help us understand what's happening in terms of of Western sanctions. All right. Next up, we've got Associate Professor of Public Health, Eric Nelson, who teaches and researches at Brigham Young University. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. What a privilege. Yeah. So uh, full disclosure, uh, Eric and I have published together now multiple times and uh, because he's much more talented than me, I plan on publishing him as much in the future as he will uh, allow because he does some really awesome stuff. So uh, we'll dive into some of that, but dive into some of the stuff that he does on his own, which is much more than what he does with me. So uh, I guess we should start with, you know, your academic training. So uh, what's your background in academia? How were you trained? What are your skills? Uh, What's your expertise? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll go the short version because uh, all of us have been in school for way too long. Um, short version is I, I was an undergraduate here. At, I'm now at my alma mater, Brigham Young University. I, I was training in geography because I like to make maps. I didn't like that so much. I went to chemical engineering and uh, didn't like that either. I ended up in public health like most of the rest of my colleagues. So I got a bachelor's in science and public health education, which most people call uh, community health or health promotion now. Uh, Then I went on to do a master's degree in epidemiology, a master's of public health at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I stayed on there uh, with Dr. Shalini Kulasingham as my PhD mentor and got a PhD in epidemiology. Uh, Continued on in my training, went for a postdoc experience. Um, I was with Mario Schutman at St. Louis University in the College for Public Health and Social Justice. And that was all about spatial statistics and spatial epidemiology. And uh, that's kind of the the training pedigree. And then I've been off on my own trying to be an outstanding independent researcher since. Now, if this were a few years ago, uh, it would be even more important for you to define epidemiology because I feel like now everyone's heard that word every single day of their life since the pandemic started. But even so, um, what is the field of epidemiology? What specifically are folks doing in that field? Yeah, for sure. You know, I often joke in class that it took me a few years just to even tell my parents and my mother-in-law um, what an epidemiologist is. Um, first of all, we're not skin doctors. And also, if you're looking at the movie Contagion, I often get, hey, you're that really cool guy, you know, Lawrence Fishburne in that movie. I said, no, I wish. <laughs> um, so epidemiology, we're, we're all about studying the distribution and determinants of disease. Um, and you can take that definition a lot further, but it's really about You know, what is it at the population level um, that gets people sick? What can we do to prevent it? Um, And how can we become better as a people um, from studying the past and the future? And a lot of what you, people in your field study, and I can't speak specifically to you, but a lot of what people in your field study are not just the things that individually raise our risk. We all have genes, right? We all have our own individual propensities and behaviors and those sorts of things. Um, but also what what you call the social determinants of health, right? Can you expand a little bit upon that? Yeah, sure. You know, we usually lump into three categories, those who study chronic diseases, those who study infectious or acute illnesses. And then there's this third outlying group that's becoming more prominent, uh, social epidemiologists. And I probably fall in that group. Um, And we're all about the social determinants of health. So figuring out what are things that are out there in society that might be a little bit tricky to measure, um, things like poverty, Um, Things like race, some of those things that are drivers, underlying structural differences and inequalities in our society that 
you know, tend to favor some groups and, and disadvantage others. And how do those um, constructs, those things that are put in place, how do they really um, affect people's health and well-being or their ability to access health and well-being? So that's that's what we're trying to co- uh, capture with those. All right. So when you when you say that you do uh, spatial statistics, what does that mean? Yeah. So I, I kind of fell into this funny world of statistics, spatial statistics, um, kind of by happenstance. Again, I mentioned earlier, I, I love maps and I love geography. And the idea of space and time were really interesting to me. So where are people um, and why does that matter? How does that impact their health? So not only your individual characteristics, but the the context of where you live and the world that you walk through um, and all your sum total of those experiences were really exciting to me. So I wanted to figure out how to quantify that, how to incorporate it into my work. And um, you do that through a couple of different techniques, one's through spatial um, statistics and others through multi-level modeling. And depending on who you talk to, those are very similar techniques. So, <laughs> So, so that's really what it is. It's all about trying to capture space and time and, and the context of, of where people are. And then I, of course, apply that to, to health outcomes. So one of the concepts that Eric and I use and a number of other scholars use in their research is a concept called concentrated disadvantage. This is when you see multiple dimensions of disadvantage occurring in the same place at the same time rather than just poverty. Right. So um, it's other things as well, like high unemployment or widespread single parenthood. And what you find is, while, yes, statistically speaking, poor areas tend to struggle more than non-poor areas. It's really these areas of concentrated disadvantage where you see some of the worst outcomes, where there's multiple dimensions of disadvantage. So violence, for instance, violence tends to be most likely to occur in areas of concentrated disadvantage. And this is why you see certain non-white groups overrepresented in crime categories like homicide. Homicide occurs in areas of intense disadvantage. That would be true regardless of who lives there. And so non-white groups are disproportionately represented because they live there, not because they're non-white. If all brown-eyed Americans or all tall Americans lived in these same neighborhoods, then those would be the people who were overrepresented in those categories. And we would say, well, gosh, you know, violence occurs in brown-eyed communities or gosh, you know, violence occurs in communities with tall people, right? It's about where you live. Uh, Robert Sampson, who's a well-regarded scholar in this area, he explains that, quote, racial disparities and violent crime rates are attributable in large part to the persistent structural disadvantages disproportionately concentrated in African-American communities, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, race is not a direct cause of violence, but is rather a marker for the cluster of social and material disadvantages that both follow from and constitute racial status in America, end quote. And Eric, I know this is something you do not just when you publish with me, but when you uh, do your own work, which is a much larger part of your day, uh, you focus on this this bigger concept of, of concentrated disadvantage. Yeah, sure. So measuring poverty is always really tricky, right? It's this latent construct, this unobservable thing that's out there that somehow equates to people having advantage in society or not. And so some of the basic and early on metrics were, let's just figure out how much money people make, right? Their income, whether we do that, the individual level of the household. I like to take more of a multidimensional approach and let the data hash it out. And so one of the measures I love is based off Samson's work in his 1997 paper in Nature um, about concentrated disadvantage, or some call it collective efficacy. Uh, Give it whatever title you want. But the idea is that you take this multidimensional problem, poverty, you you use principal components analysis or some, some other dimensional reduction strategy, and you let the data say what they are. And so concentrated disadvantage really is a, a melting pot of all these variables that then describe this latent construct of poverty. And they include, like you mentioned, female-headed household, um, income, um, other metrics uh, of that nature, how many are on food stamps, uh, public assistance, whether or not they have insurance, unemployment, whatever you want to throw into that recipe and let the data tell you um, what poverty looks like in that area. So that's been my favorite approach. Yeah, it's interesting. And, And you and I have actually teamed up on a few papers where um, we've looked at some of the social and economic costs of inequality. Michael McLaughlin's been involved as well. And one of the things you see is uh, that's been pretty, uh, you mentioned, you know, Samson and people who have done stuff on communities and neighborhoods. Um, 
one of the things you see is that like violence, for instance, isn't just something that occurs in neighborhoods that are poor, but it's neighborhoods that are really sort of desperate, ha- have multiple dimensions of, of disadvantage. And, and, you know, it's not just the poverty, right? Yeah, it's a lot of things that come together that, you know, I think facilitate and uh, breed that kind of uh, an environment where it's, it's really fight to survive, fight to live. And I get that. Um, and so this is really just one way, you know, as an academic in our ivory tower looking and saying, let's try and consider, consider some of the other contexts, you know, some of the contextual factors that play into this and not just blame it on what people look like or how they walk. But let's let's put some you know structural idea into this and realize that there that we are kind of uh, subject to our environment and subject to nature around us on top of what we have going on inside of us. And so trying to look at the holistic view. Yeah, my students, one of the things that often opens their eyes is when I show them studies of uh, of violence uh, that account for concentrated disadvantage. And what you find is that when you control for that, racial differences in involvement in property crimes and violent crimes disappear. And But the problem, of course, is that we live in such different neighborhoods. I think it was Patrick Sharkey who showed that 78% of African-American children grow up in highly disadvantaged neighborhoods, only 5% of white children. If that didn't exist, you wouldn't see those kinds of disparities in, in not just, by the way, involvement in violent crime, but also victimization sure. by violent crime, right? Yeah, absolutely. Add in other topics, right? Uh, childhood lead exposure. It seems to live in these areas, which is tied to all sorts of, you know, malpractice and malfeasance of redlining and and other things that um, many people don't quite understand unless they've lived it. And unfortunately, we don't teach this in our schools and other places where we can get a better view of, of why things are the way they are in our country and, and learn to look at each other and love each other despite our, our hardships. You mentioned uh, lead exposure. Um, can you talk a l- little bit more about the research you've done in that area? Yeah, you know, I kind of fell into this because a friend had a data set and he said, hey, you're young and green and, and let's go at it. And it's been great ever since. So very briefly before you go on, just for our listeners, this is often what happens in academia. I found a great data set. This is my new expertise. <laughs> I, found, I found a great data set. Let's hack at it. That's um, right. <laughs> no, it was, it was this data set. I happen to have the skill set. It was a marriage made in heaven. Um, and so I'm grateful to my colleagues, especially Brian Boutwell, who um, now is at Old Miss and is, is a great friend and a great scholar. Um, but we, we wanted to look at things outside of the normal wheelhouse of lead exposure. We know that lead exposure is horrible uh, for kids and leads to all sorts of mental delay and, uh, and IQ and social problems and so forth. And we wanted to say, what if, what if we could fast forward these kids that are currently exposed? Do we think this ties into some of the, the criminal behaviors and things that go forward? Not to blame criminals for having lead exposure, nor to say lead exposure is going to lead people to crime, but do these things seem to cluster together? And does, is there a long-term problem with lead exposure beyond just um, some of those social things that we've talked about? And so, you know, I got into looking at um, lead exposure, tying it to things like sexually transmitted infections. We looked at it in terms of violent crimes. We've looked at it in terms of carrying handguns. Um, and now I'm trying to get more back to my, back to my roots and look at things like, okay, lead exposure is a real thing, but how can we prevent it? None of this downstream stuff, but how do we get upstream? So um, I've been blessed to be working with a group uh, at Indiana University um, and some others at the NAACP to try and remediate lead in uh, Indianapolis. And we've got some pilot projects and grants, and hopefully those will come through and and we can help kids. And that's the ultimate dream of academia, of of higher ed, right, is is not just to describe problems, but make it actionable, right, And, and do something about it. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think, you know, it's like anything. We're in a business, right? We're in a business of training students, helping them get jobs. But we're also in a business of writing papers and trying to get tenure. And once you get past all of that stress, whether you have tenure or not, and realize I can make a difference, research becomes really meaningful, becomes really fun. Um, it becomes really collaborative. It becomes inviting. And uh, that's why I do what I do. I, I've really enjoyed um, that new paradigm that I found the last couple of years. Um, and you mentioned publishing papers. This can't be right. I, I read this. How old are you, Eric? Oh, I'm 37, almost 38. Okay. Well, then this is, I can't even believe you said that. I'm 39. This is going to make me feel really awful. I read in your bio, you've published over 50 peer-reviewed journal articles. Is that right? Yeah, somewhere in there. I don't really keep track. 
They're not all first author. They're not all senior (laughs) author. I got great collaborators, Mike Vaughn, Brian Boutwell, um, many other people who are just dear to me who I work with. Somebody's keeping track of BYU and holy moly. uh, That's awesome. So, um, yeah. Cheers to your next thousand papers that you uh, that you publish. <laughs> well, you, you know, we always joke in academics, 80 percent of the stuff that's out there is junk. So hopefully I'm not 80 percent. <laughs> um, but, you know, my my approach to higher ed and, you know, for anyone who might be listening, who cares, a student or something. Um, I think the world's a better place when you try and make those around you rise. If you're trying to be the lead alpha all the time then you're doing it wrong. But if you just find great people to work with and you watch your peers rise and your peers get the awards, that's where I get the most satisfaction of doing all this. And I think that's why I've been lucky enough to publish as I have. So uh, something else you mentioned, which I think is really interesting and I'd love for you to expand upon, is the research that you've done in increasing access to uh, the HPV vaccine for underprivileged women, which is a part of, it looks like sort of your larger research agenda into sexual health. So can you tell us a little bit about that area of your research and the HPV stuff in, spe- uh, in particular? Yeah, I, you know, when I was a young master's student and again, my love for maps, I teamed up with uh, Dr. Shalini Kulasingham at the University of Minnesota. And we were mapping just where HPV associated cancers occur. And that was really exciting. And she said, hey, you're pretty good at this. You should stay on, apply for the PhD program. And I got involved with her and, and she was a godsend for many reasons. She's an incredible researcher, an even better human being, and she does stuff that matters. Um, and so Shalini has been involved with HPV testing um, for a long time, helping write the guidelines um, for the ACIP and all that fun stuff. Um, and the task force, the United, Sur- United States Preventive Task Force Service, whatever it's called. And she kind of opened my eyes to all the disparities that were there. So with HPV, um, this was new at the time. Now it's pretty commonplace to do at-home testing, kind of like we do with the pandemic. You put a swab up your nose, right? But this is just be for anal genital regions and uh, trying to detect HPV at home and trying to minimize the amount of contacts that these people have to have with clinics and clinicians where they can't afford them and get them tested and hopefully access to treatment. So we started doing that. Um, others have carried forward that work, and it's it's been really rewarding to try and advance the science to take the science to the people instead of just saying, hey, come to the clinic all the time. How can we bring it to you? How can we help you get what you need? How can we improve your life? How can we improve your sexual health and your experiences? And and that's kind of where I went down that path for, for quite some time. Now, being a, a research methodologist, methodologist as you are, um, I know as somebody in academia that um, you're a hot commodity, that when you go on the market, people uh, uh, pick you up pretty quickly. Um, and then put you to work once you get into uh, your department. So I'm assuming you're teaching research methods to students there. Um, and one of the big programs I know that is used today that, and it seems like every job is is asking people is um, training in GIS. So uh, tell us about GIS. It's I think it's one of the tools in your toolbox, right? And uh, it's really, I mean, it, it's really useful on the job market today. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm always about, um, and again, this goes back to Dr. Kula Singh and being an excellent advisor to me. She was saying, you got to make yourself different, Eric. You got to stand out. What's your unique skill set? You can't be vanilla all the time. And since I love maps, she kind of kept pushing me in that direction, helped connect me with great scholars like John Hughes and other people. And um, GIS, Geographic Information Systems, it's broad. If you start talking to a geographer, they're going to, you know, hit me over the head for my definition here, but they're going to include the computer, the space, the data, all that. When I think of GIS, I think of a software primarily that can carry out um, spatial analysis. And so the more you can know how to make maps, incorporate space through your, through your statistical methodologies and so forth, is the more you're going to capture that context of where people live to then help that inform all the other individual relationships you're looking at between your independent and dependent variables. And so it's really just a really cool way to visualize maps, visualize space, and um, pretty tricky to do, but a lot of fun once you get involved. It brings out your artistry side. You get to do colors and maps and all sorts of cool things. So it seems like, and I, I tell people this all the time, in fact, I just did a talk at the Lion, the local Lions Club <laughs> a couple of days ago uh, about this revolution that we're in. Uh, 
both in terms of computational revolution, but also uh, just just database revolution. So um, our, the ability for us to analyze things uh, statistically has increased, our computational power has increased, and also our access. So for instance, a lot of the databases that I use, um, you know, they contain millions of tax return uh, records that allow us to make some real, much more um, substantial, much more robust um, explanations of the impact of where people grow up on, on how they end up in life. Um, are, you, are you as excited as I am about this big revolution in, in the sciences? Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. It's also a little bit dangerous, I think, sometimes. Um, why it's awesome, you know, data science, what's available. I mean, it's amazing. And, the you know, artificial intelligence and other methods for, for seeking through um, the data and finding meaning is really important. I think it's also a little bit dangerous, um, you know, because it's also everyone's carrying a hammer and everything looks like a nail a little bit. <laughs> and so you can find some associations in some of these big data sets and make a big deal about it when really they don't matter. They don't matter clinically. They don't matter socially. Um, so I think it's, a, you know, like everything in academics, a two-edged sword. You get the right data and they are what they are. You use the right analysis approach. You're going to be approaching truth and sharing truth with others. And with, that's what we're all after. Um, but if you're, if you're a little bit off, it can really take you off course. All right. So you've got a long history of publication here. You've done a lot of great work and you're 37, which just is like a punch in the gut to me. So, uh, so what are you working on now? What do you got in the pipeline? What's your uh, research agenda in the near future? Yeah. So, you know, I've really, I'm going to keep going on with the lead exposure um, approach. I, I think there's a lot of good that can be done there. So I'm, I'm definitely have one arm going that way. Um, it's also, I'm at a point in my career where I can pivot and do a few more things that are, are fun and personally meaningfully to me. So the, the big pet project I have going on is uh, working with pediatric patients, uh, specifically kids who have a condition called pulmonary hypertension. And most people aren't familiar with this. Um, maybe grandma and grandpa might get it. But uh, pH or pulmonary hypertension, it's this life-threatening disease, and it's usually characterized by an elevated uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure and pulmonary vascular resistance. All to say you have high blood pressure in your lungs, which then leads to right heart failure, which is a strange phenomenon. Usually we die of left heart failure. So uh, full disclosure, I have a son who was born with this condition. Um, he's 10 now, thank goodness. And I'm emotionally ready to, to approach this problem. So I've I'm collecting data as uh, this podcast is happening on this very topic, and we're going to try and figure out what medicines work best, figure out what's, what the side effects are and whether they're worth it for the clinical benefit these kids get, and also kind of go after big insurance companies and say it's about time you cover these meds for, for families like mine. So that's, that's what's in the pipeline. So this, this project, you know, there are some projects that you do. Uh, that you can just sit in your office, you can bring up Stata or SPSS or GIS or any other program, and you can bang out the data in a weekend and you know, put together a paper and, and you'll be fine. What you're describing sounds incredibly collaborative. It sounds like there are some uh, medical trials and you're, you're going to be dealing with a lot of different uh, actors and a lot of different stakeholders. So who might be involved in all these different parts of this project? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I, I really believe in training the next generation. So I've got some great undergraduate and graduate students who are, are helping me with this and have been a great sounding board. Um, you know, because this is a personal project to me, my wife is also a sounding board as we think through the research questions and our lived experience with our son who has this. But um, then I'm teaming with the real professionals, the pe um, surgeons and um, cardiovascular docs and pulmonologists who, who treat kids with this every day. And then we're bringing in an outsider who's an insurance specialist to figure out, you know, why are these medics, why does it take so long for these medications to get through the FDA approval to then get to the insurance to then get to people's wallets so that kids can access these medicines. And so we have so much great technology, but we have these huge gaps in the system. And granted, this is a small subset of the population, thank goodness, who has to deal with this, but it would be no different for someone who has a kid with diabetes are no different for someone else who has another life-threatening or uh, condition or cancer and trying to access some new treatment that's shown, showing benefit. And how do we get it into the hands of the right people faster? If I wasn't holding my microphone, I would clap for you right now. Uh, 
I got to say, I mean, it, and, and I think, you know, this as well as anybody, um, given your position in academia, but, um, you know, the loudest people in a conversation oftentimes get the most attention. And so, you know, you see any, any profession has its, um, you know, has its malcontents and, and bad actors and, you know, the, the worst of higher ed can, can get the most attention. And yet most people I know are like you are doing amazing work that's intended to really help make the, make the human experience better. I mean, w- would you say that's true? I hope that's true. Um, I hope I'm not one of those bad actors, you know. I think on any given day, all of us... Nothing you've described right? sounds bad. <laughs> no, I, I, Let's I, help I, kids. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my goal is, is purely that. It's not after any financial gain. It's not after notoriety. It's not after a news clipping uh, to have my name next. So that's just not how I, I particularly operate. In fact, I would much rather have someone else be the lead author and do that, all that stuff so I could just keep hacking on the data and uh, trying to do good things. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, my experience, I've been at some great institutions and there've been, yeah, there've been those outliers, but I'd say most people are in, in their job for the right reason and been fortunate to find most of those for my career. Yeah. But you say the wrong thing for 15 seconds and that's the thing that goes viral, right? So, uh, yeah, um, that's the world we live in and, <laughs> and, uh, hopefully we'll be quick to forgive each other cause we're all going to make that same misstep, right? Well, speaking of that, uh, I I was reading in your bio uh, something that I found very interesting and I thought maybe you could expand upon. Um, But in your bio on on the BYU site, it says um, that Dr. Nelson is, quote, excited to not need to hold back or hide the most meaningful part of me, which is that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I know you've been other places. I believe you were at Indiana before this, right? Yeah. And you've made your way back to BYU. So can you expand a little bit upon uh, that statement and what it means and, and, and help our listeners understand that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's no surprise, you know, working for uh, BYU, um, it's a church sponsored school, right? We're sponsored by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you have to adhere to some cer- certain principles to, to be able to even work here or to attend as a student. And that to me is liberating. Um, for many, it's, it's something that I think holds them captive, but for me, it's liberating. And what I mean by that and by that statement, you know, other places I've been, um, whether that was working as a mechanic before I got into academics or in academics. Is that true? Yeah, true. true oh, story. wow. Um, I wouldn't say I was an excellent mechanic. I probably did more of the service writing and more of the assistant here. I'll hold the muffler and someone tell me what to screw in. There's a reason why you had to change careers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I'm just a little guy. I can't lift all that stuff all day long. Um, you know, but, but in wherever I've been on every walk of life, there seems to be this desire to have a separation of, of who you are and the field that you're in. For example, we're in science, so you can only be a scientist. And forget what experiences you bring with you, um, and and I don't I don't ascribe to that at all. I think we're a, a cumulative sum total of of our experiences, right? And a big part of my life has been um, trying to emulate um, service and love towards other people, regardless of what they look like. I'm certain I failed at that many times, especially in my in my younger days. But I'm I'm trying to be better each and every day. You know, I don't know anybody who's sinned tomorrow. And so I'm trying to take the approach where we meet people where they're at. We give them the benefit of the doubt. And um, what that looks like for me now, you know, is very different than what it looked like at former institutions. And I'll I'll give an example. Um, I had a a lovely student, great person, really bright, one of the top of my class who approached me the week before finals in tears and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to be here for the final exam. Is there any way I can make it up? My father has brain cancer. We just found out last night and she's weeping. And my initial reaction was to throw my arms around this young lady and tell her that she's loved, you know, that she's not alone. And I couldn't do that for all the reason you mentioned. That's that's 15 seconds of of someone might snap a picture. Someone might say the wrong thing. He's approaching this person otherwise. And all I had was a human response. I just wanted to love this person. And I did the best I could um, through veiled terminology. You know, I I hope it's okay, you know, that I pray for you if that's not offensive to you type of thing. But now where I am, if I have a similar experience, like I did the other day, a young student who said, you know, I'm I'm really struggling with uh, something in his life. And 
you know, I reached out and I gave him a hug and I talked to him about it. And I said, what are you doing? What, what can I do for you? How can we work on this together? I'm, I'm in the trenches. I'm here to journey with you. And, uh, you know, that's a big part of who I want to be and who I'm striving to become. And so not having to veil that anymore is, is really freeing to me. So Eric, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, push you a little farther. If you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, uh, but, um, I, th- I think this is an interesting thing to, to ask you about. So that, that statement in your bio, so Dr. Nelson's excited to be back at BYU and not to have to hold back. If, I, if I'm reading that correctly, what that sounds like is um, that at previous stops, maybe you've had to kind of hide your faith a little bit. Can you tell us about that? I mean, it, first of all, am I right? And, and if so, tell us a little bit about having to navigate um, a profession that maybe is difficult when you're a person of faith? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, faith and science for some people mix like oil and water, right? Um, they can't coexist. They can't cohabitate. And I disagree with that strongly. Uh, you know, my both of those things are trying to lead me to some eternal truth that's out there. And in the scientific world, it's it's whatever the true associations and relationships are and how do we enhance or mitigate or stop some of those relationships to help people's health, right? And, and my faith side of things, it's the same thing. I'm trying to draw relationships to the people around me, particularly my family, my children, um, as well as a higher power. And what are, the, what are the ways to enhance those relationships to cut off certain ones that don't need to be um, there that are holding me back, right? Um, in academia, um, I won't name names or places. I've been in several meetings and, and places where, you know, my faith and faith in general was belittled. Um, and to stand up in that moment would have meant, perchance, not getting a, a raise. It might have meant not being invited to participate in a certain committee or maybe cutting off some ties with colleagues to collaborate because, um, because I am what I am. Um, in other settings, it's meant that people can disparage maybe my views while enhancing their own. The squeaky wheel gets the grease on, on certain controversial topics. Um, yeah, so being where I am now, um, I'm free to pursue faith and science in tandem. And for me, they never conflict. In fact, I would say my scientific approach is enhanced by my faith, that um, I'm going about things the right way. And my faith is enhanced because I can find truth. And it's not always through a, a true methodological approach where it's rote and um, linear. Sometimes it's through the circular and the quadratic to where I find myself and find what I am and find what I'm about and what I'm trying to be in the world. So, All right, Eric. So before we wrap up and I'll ask you a, a final question about your research, I want to talk a little bit about family. Uh, you and I have a little bit in common, which I didn't realize till after I'd reached out to you and asked you to collaborate with me. Uh, two things in particular, we both married our high school sweethearts and we both have a lot of kids. So let's start with your wife, Jenny, uh, high school sweetheart. Tell us that story. Oh, Jenny, she's amazing. She's, uh, she's everything I've ever wanted in a partner. Um, we first met when we were just going into our freshman year of high school and I had a crush on her my whole life. Um, you know, we started dating late in our junior year. And then um, her family was actually moving away for our senior year of high school. And we kind of did a pseudo long distance relationship, the best a high schooler can. And, um, you know, we uh, had this journey where I was going to go off to college across the, the states. And she was going to go 40 miles south to Provo, Utah, Brigham Young University. And I said, where's that? Even though I grew up around here. And um, she let me know she was going there. So I filled out the application that night and followed her to school. And um, I served a two-year church service mission um, for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then uh, when I came home, I, I chased her as hard as I could. And um, luckily, she said yes. So the rest is history. I've known that, uh, that amazing individual longer than I have it. And uh, she's the best part of my life. Wow. I've known her longer than I haven't. That's pretty awesome. Um, so I have a funny story to tell our listeners. Uh, when I first reached out to Eric, um, I was doing some research on the impact of the communities that we grow up in on our, uh, on our adult outcomes. And, um, 
I was doing a little bit different stuff with a different database and I, I knew there were these mapping techniques and I found that he was an expert in this. And so I wanted to add that to the paper that I was writing. And so I reached out. And so that was the primary reason why I reached out to him. I think I actually was um, given your name by somebody else and somebody else who, who knew you. And so anyway, so uh, we're corresponding over email. The, I think it's the very beginning of the pandemic, right? And uh, we're both just crushed with work and we had to switch online to teaching and and it was a rough time. And so I was trying to like, you know, I think lay it on real thick that, you know, Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling this obligation to you despite all of the stuff that I got going on. And I'm like, you know, I got four kids and, and then you write back and say, yeah, we got our seven here. And I'm like, how did he beat me with not five, not six, but seven children. So, uh, so tell us about your, your big family. Oh man, that, that would be an entire podcast in and of itself. Um, I, my wife and I have been blessed with seven children. Um, I know it's hard for some to conceive. And so we feel like, you know, our quiver is completely full and my heart goes out to anyone who wants to be a parent. It's the greatest, hardest, most wonderful thing I've ever done is parenting. And um, I often just remind my kids, you know, I've never been a parent before. I've never done this with a 14 year old daughter before. I have no idea what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, we just pray and we try and we counsel and we work together to raise this amazing family um without it's probably not right for me to talk about my kids on air and let them be their own people but um, i have five sons and two daughters and uh they are the center of my universe and they will always come first and your 10 year old with the heart condition is that under control everything good with that as much as can be um you know that's that's an unwritten story with a, an ending that you know, I prefer not to dwell on, but um, he's doing great right now. Thanks for asking. Um, and we hope that he has a long future ahead of him. We're, we're grateful for amazing doctors. Dr. Johansson um, should be mentioned and will be in my biography for the rest of life. He's an incredible human um, and there's really changed Tate's course in his life and, and Dr. Mark Grady in St. Louis. So, yeah, he's doing well. And we hope to have many more years of him. He's the biggest rascal in our house. He's the prankster <laughs> and um probably the most active soul in our house, but his body limits him from being as active as he wants. He's, he's great. Well, we, we definitely wish him the best. Well, before we leave, uh, I want to ask you uh, a question about, you know, what this all means, all the stuff that we're doing. So, you know, years from now, you're 37 years old. So years from now in your sixties or seventies and some professors go on beyond that, uh, well, I guess I should ask you, how, when do you see yourself walking away? I don't think I'll ever walk away. I love it too much, I especially the classroom side of it. I, I want to be around these young minds forever. Yeah, I, I hear people talk about retirement and, and I love my job. I mean, when people ask me what I do, I say I read and write about the things that most interest me all day long. I take a break to go to the classroom to talk to people about the things that I'm reading and writing about. <laughs> right. like I, I go and ask them questions that I don't have the answer to. Right. Hopefully they fill in the gaps for me. That's the best part of teaching. That's right. Yeah. I don't see myself walking away either. They'll, they'll pry me, pry me out of the classroom with a crowbar, but uh, all right. So, but you know, years from now when you do walk away, um, what, what do you hope? What do you think your biggest contribution will be to science? Oh, well, um, I would say my hope, first of all, my biggest contribution would be that I've trained and raised up future scholars. I hope that that happens in perpetuity, and I hope they raise up great scholars, people who are willing to think outside the box, people who are willing to um, apply new methods, to be brave, um, and to go for it. Um, that would be my the thing that I cherish most. You know, the teaching award I would value much more than landing an NIH R01 grant for millions of dollars. Um, on the true research side of it, I hope that, you know, something that my colleagues and I dream up, maybe it's with pulmonary hypertension, maybe it's with this lead exposure stuff, who knows, maybe it's something down the path. I hope that it will spark up some truth and an answer that gives some insight to someone to go and make a difference in someone else's life. If, if one day someone said, because I read your article or because this practice or this policy was implemented based on what you and your, your smart friends did, um, I think I would have won if I just changed one, one life. And, that, and that's really all I'm after. Well, Eric Nelson, I, I think that's going to happen for you. So thank you so much for joining uh, the podcast today. 
Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This has been a delight. It's, I'm so glad you reached out mid-pandemic and that now we're becoming uh, true friends. This is, this is really great. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you till we meet Take a liking to you.